0: Welcome to It Awaits You, a podcast composed of true Southern Gothic tales for the modern age. You're listening to It Awaits You, a collection of true stories from the loneliest corners of the American South. Now that you're caught up on the 11 missing and murdered women and one man thought to have met their ends at the hands of the Seven Bridges killer, it's time to explore the law enforcement and media response during the summer of 2009 in Rocky Mount, as well as the events leading to the arrest of the person whose DNA matched what was left in Tara Nicholson's body. As news coverage was reaching a fever pitch that summer, the police were closing in on the person they believed to be not only responsible for killing Tara, but the majority of the other 11 victims as well. Rural areas were explored with morbid purpose by volunteers and firefighters in search of missing women not yet recovered. Simultaneously, the community outrage over the initial lack of action in the cases continued to grow. The Missing and Murdered Sisters Organization Founded by Stephanie Jones, was erecting digital billboards as city councilman and NAACP chapter director Andre Knight continued a campaign for answers and accountability. The Rocky Mount Telegram even stepped up its reporting on the missing women with a new young journalist, Mike Hixenbaugh. The victims of the Seven Bridges killer were gaining long deserved attention, but they still didn't seem to meet the threshold the type of quick response you might see from media and law enforcement under different circumstances, with victims from a different side of the literal and figurative tracks than that of the Seven Bridges Killer's victims. Here are some examples of the contrast between those two American realities. While the Seven Bridges Killer was years into amassing his gruesome collection, another crime in Rocky Mount and its investigation highlighted a clear difference in response. The Meals on Wheels director in Rocky Mount, a well-known and active community member, Deborah Cornegay, was stabbed to death in the kitchen of a church as she prepared food in 2007. Her assistant director, Eve Beasley, suffered the same fate alongside Deborah. The murderer, Tommy Lee Holliday, had a series of convictions tied to violent crimes dating back to 1993, but was currently out of prison. To contrast the response to the Seven Bridges cases, and further established the idea of two Americas mentioned prior. Police Chief John Manley enacted a massive search for Deborah and Eve's killer, including roadblocks, assistance from state law enforcement and even surveillance from above. All of this occurred within 24 hours of the murders. Chief Manley acknowledged the reality of the response differences in this interview excerpt. Referring to the families of the Seven Bridges victims, he said, quote, "'They need to stay on law enforcement you have to stay on us. Let us know that you're not going away until you know we've done everything we possibly could do. Because if you don't care, I don't know why we should. Manley's quote is an indication that, consciously or not, society deems some people worthy of a proactive response, while others could receive a begrudgingly reactive response if they push hard enough. A twisted morality shaped by a double standard in acknowledging the gravity of these crimes and the resources available to investigate them. Meanwhile, in August of 2009, true crime entertainment personality and former prosecutor Nancy Grace set up an interview with victim Jarnice Hargrove's mother, Patsy. But the car that was supposed to pick up Patsy and take her to a studio in Raleigh, North Carolina for her interview never arrived. Instead, she had been passed up for a breaking story in Florida regarding a young white missing mother who had recently been accused of hiring a hitman to kill her husband. Nancy Grace's attention, as well as the nation's, turned to the newest story, the story most likely to captivate viewers. Patsy Hargrove's chance to tell Jarnice's story to the world was gone, without an explanation, at least not out loud. Fortunately, the CNN show Anderson Cooper 360 covered the cases on August 10, 2009, becoming a catalyst for even more national attention. In contrast, the mayor of Rocky Mount at the time, David Combs, claimed to not know the full extent of the murders until July or August of 2009. And while it is possible the police were working internally for some time, the FBI was called in to assist in July. The mayor even admitted to only learning about a candlelight vigil attended by hundreds of people by reading about it afterward in the newspaper. While any critique of Mayor Combs is worthy of exploring, it's also fair to place him in the greater context of history. He became mayor by beating a veteran Black city councilman in a community that's 56% Black. Why? Most of his votes came from the Nash County side of the railroad tracks only receiving 12% in Edgecombe County. How could this level of underrepresentation happen? This situation was actually over 100 years in the making. During Reconstruction, black culture, business, and political power continued to grow on the Edgecombe County side of Rocky Mount, as previously enslaved people flourished and thrived there. This situation was not met with open arms by many of the white citizens of Rocky Mount at the time, as you might expect. But unlike the untethered violence found in the Tulsa Race Massacre in Oklahoma, or the Wilmington Insurrection in North Carolina, their approach in Rocky Mount was more subtle, though no less significant. In 1871, the General Assembly of North Carolina moved the border between Nash and Edgecombe counties from the Tar River to Main Street in Rocky Mount along the railroad tracks. This simple action had a few gradual effects. Many black residents were shifted into Nash County, purposefully decreasing their voting power. Profits from the mill, railroad, and downtown were also, in turn, handed over to Nash County. From there, the racial divide continued to fracture all elements of everyday life. Moving forward through the decades, infrastructure in black areas was allowed to crumble. Loans were denied for black community members. And despite victories in labor organizing around tobacco and sanitation, despite the voting rights lawsuit of 1983 that brought black majority control to the city, the damage was done. The opportunities for someone who wasn't white or wealthy in Rocky Mount gradually disappeared as planned. When considering the long arc of history, This created the type of impoverished and underrepresented environment that breeds victims of serial killers, while the murderers themselves fly under the cover of night and the indifference of time, until it's too late. To this day, black city council members, public servants, and everyday citizens in Rocky Mount face an onslaught from the old guard of white politicians and business owners intent on maintaining power in an evolving city. Everything that happened before and after 1871 in Rocky Mount, it compounded and led to that summer in 2009, when separate realities, created by denial of a tragic history in common, began to collide. When the two American realities referenced throughout this tale were forced to meet in the context of a serial killer investigation, forced to confront the monsters created in the shadow of lost opportunity, In no way does this remove any blame from the person who committed these crimes, but it does reinforce the idea that monsters, their victims, and any investigation that follows are certainly impacted by their community and its history. One of these supposed monsters had been sitting stoically in the shadows of the Nash County Jail since August 12, 2009. He was caught while driving drunk with a revoked license and on the run after dodging a court date. In addition, he had failed to register his most recent address as a sex offender. But, he was on law enforcement's radar as soon as the FBI began assisting the task force in July 2009, when they focused on the Edgecombe County Sex Offender Registry combined with the behavioral analysis efforts. And while there can be plenty of flaws with behavioral analysis raised for discussion, the sex offender registry is important yet apparently was never checked during the first six years of the slayings on Seven Bridges Road, leaving this man off the suspect list for almost the entire investigation. This 31-year-old man in the Nash County Jail had been interviewed about Tar Nicholson by North Carolina SBI agents on July 10, 2009, while at his place of work the Purdue Chicken Plant in Lewiston, North Carolina. By then, FBI agents had already been sifting through Tara's life with the help of her mother. At the chicken plant, the man was pulled from where he worked, on the filet line, with knives, and brought to the Human Resources office, where an abrupt but casual interview lasted for roughly 15 minutes. The agents emphasized the fact that he was free to go anytime. After the man was given a sexual history questionnaire by the agent, he denied recognizing Tara's picture or ever having sex with a prostitute. Lies that would soon unravel. He would later say he told these lies out of fear of losing his girlfriend. The agents also asked the man for a DNA sample. He said he would have to get back to them on that. In less than a month, the choice would no longer be his. This man's name? is Antoine Maurice Pittman and his DNA ultimately matched the evidence taken from Tara Nicholson's body, likely after his incarceration beginning on August 12th. And on September 1st, 2009, his arrest was announced in a press conference, followed by relief in some members of the community and skepticism in others. On the surface, another black man, conveniently in jail, had been charged with a crime many felt didn't fit him. But as the most intimate details and secrets of Antoine's life slowly emerged, many in the community were convinced he wore a mask of banality while being completely capable of the murders. And not to mention, he was connected to each body's location in one way or another. Mayor Combs' response was underwhelming to say the least considering only one of a dozen people had now been potentially linked to a killer. The mayor said, quote, I don't want everybody in town just to focus on the murder, because life has to go on, and the town has to go on, and we've got a lot of great things here, and I don't want everyone that thinks about Rocky Mount to think that, well, that's where those murders occurred. Before the trial even started, the mayor wanted Antoine and his victims swept under the rug of history. Over two years later, in late September 2011, Antoine's trial would only somewhat pull back the curtain on those murders that, at least officially, remain a mystery to this day. One thing is true for sure. Since the 1990s, Antoine Pittman lived a life in close and sometimes odd proximity To every single woman who encountered the Seven Bridges killer and didn't live to speak about it, and some that did, who showed up at the trial to confidently confront him, a man they firmly believed was ready and willing to watch the life escape their eyes in the shadows of Rocky Mount and the woods of Seven Bridges Road. But beyond that, he was caught in several lies and unexplainable circumstances during the trial focused on Tara Nicholson's murder. In one week, you'll be led through the curious investigative connections made between Pittman's life and each suspected victim, before hearing about the trial that would serve to raise more questions about this suspected serial killer's life throughout the early 2000s and beyond. All the while, the prosecution portrayed him as a murderer who had been evolving in method year after year, fueled by a hatred for women, stalking them in the alleys of the city, and luring them to their death in the country. But how strong would their case actually be? You'll soon get to judge. In the meantime, you can find us on social media and get even more content through our Patreon, where your support is very appreciated. If you like this episode and want others to hear about it, Take a moment to follow, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, it awaits you.